Hello, welcome back to another episode of Dilettantry. My name is Sean Zabashi. Hope you're doing well today, whatever day it is for you. Welcome to the final episode of this introduction to Marshall McLuhan before we start our thorough dive in. For this final introductory episode, um, I think I should talk about three more things, technology, the senses, and artists, since all of these are integral to McLuhan's thought. McLuhan is primarily known as a philosopher of technology, but he analyzes technology mainly through the lens of art and his ideas about our senses. First off, technology. Like he often does, McLuhan has a unique definition of technology. McLuhan takes an idea from Edward T. Hall, one of those anthropologists I mentioned last episode, whom he had extensive correspondence and collaboration with. A lot of McLuhan's work is taking ideas from other people and extending them. It's funny I use the word extending there, because the idea that Marshall McLuhan takes from Edward T. Hall is that all technology is an extension of the body or mind. This is how Edward T. Hall explained this idea. Quote, The evolution of weapons begins with the teeth and the fist and ends with the atom bomb. Clothes and houses are extensions of man's biological temperature control mechanisms. Furniture takes the place of squatting and sitting on the ground. Power tools, glasses, TV, telephones, and books, which carry the voice across both time and space, are examples of material extensions. Money is a way of extending and storing labor. Our transportation networks now do what we used to do with our feet and backs. In fact, all man-made material things can be treated as extensions of what man once did with his body or some specialized part of his body. Unquote. We'll come back to technology in a sec, but first let's delve a little into the senses, and then we'll combine the two. So another key idea of McLuhan's is what's called the sensorium. The sensorium is a cool-sounding word that describes all of our senses, sight, hearing, touch, smell, taste, but as a unit, often with the implication, it seems to me, that the whole is more than the sum of its parts. That's certainly how McLuhan uses it. McLuhan thinks that our senses are integral to our consciousness. He says, quote, Our private senses are not closed systems, but are endlessly translated into each other in that experience we call consciousness. Unquote. Translation, by the way, is another probe used by McLuhan. It's really connected to metaphor for him. But most importantly, like I was talking about, the internal translation of our senses with one another is integral to consciousness. An example of this, and I'm sure many of you know this, is how the raw visual data we receive through our eyes is upside down. If you don't, you can look up some diagrams to explain this on Google. It's a little hard to do without a visual aid. Essentially, light from above our line of sight hits our eyes at the bottom, and light from below our line of sight hits our eyes at the top. So the world is upside down. The raw visual data that comes into our eyes is upside down, but our brain unconsciously flips it, so we never even notice. However, McLuhan thinks that we translate this visual information into tactile and kinetic terms, so we know which way is up. He says that, quote, right side up is apparently something we feel but cannot see directly, unquote. It's pretty crazy to think of it framed that way. We never see right side up directly. But we feel things like gravity and how our bodies are oriented, and our mind, McLuhan supposes, uses this feeling to make us see right side up. The feeling in our body is translated into the visual. He goes on to say that, quote, To the student of media, the fact that normal right side up vision is a translation from one sense into another is a helpful hint about the kinds of activity of distortion and translation that any language or culture induces in all of us, unquote. Another cool but lesser-known example is the relationship between hearing and sight and touch. There was just one line in one of McLuhan's books where he mentions that there's a relationship between hearing and our skin. 
I think McLuhan might have just been talking about the structure or being metaphorical or something, as he often is. But it led me to a Scientific American article from 2009 that adds further evidence to McLuhan's idea that the senses intermingle. So the article says, quote, The act of hearing is a group effort for the human body's organs, involving the ears, the eyes, and also, according to the results of a new study, the skin, unquote. Well, I'll be damned. So there's something called the McGurk effect, where in 1976, scientists did a study where they showed a video of somebody saying ga with a G, but the audio for the video was playing ba with a B. Participants heard a sound that wasn't either of those. They heard da with a D. So what they saw, the mouth moving on the screen, altered what they heard. Even crazier, even if you know it's an illusion, many people still hear da with a D, but if they close their eyes... They hear the correct audio, ba with a b. Um, there have been studies where this effect occurs with whole words, not just random syllables. And it's also been shown that if it's a female face and a male voice, or vice versa, the effect still occurs. So even if you know that the voice isn't connected to the person you're watching, it doesn't matter. So pretty interesting, our hearing is affected by our vision. So where does the skin come into all of this? Well, it has to do with the letters P, T, and K, compared with the letters B, D, and G. Let's use P and B as our examples. They're very similar sounding letters. The main difference, and I recommend you try this out, especially if you're somewhere crowded, is that P is accompanied by a little puff of air, while B is not, right? B, P, P, B, P. B involves the vocal cords, whereas P is just a little puff of air. B, P. It's similar with T and D and with K and G. So in an experiment, Scientists got 66 people to listen to either ba and pa or ta and da through headphones blindfolded. The researchers would then send a little puff of air from a tube placed over the skin of the participants at but half the strength of a normal puff from one's mouth in a conversation when making the P sound. Sometimes the puff corresponded with the right sound, sometimes not. Without the air puff, they misheard 30 to 40% of the time. With an air puff corresponding to the correct letter, it improved 10 to 20%. And when it didn't correspond with the correct letter, the accuracy decreased by 10%. So maybe not as dramatic as the results of how seeing affects hearing, but still interesting. So the sensorium, all five senses combined, is important for McLuhan, as well as the idea that the senses intermingle and affect each other. But, and this is the key thing, he sees the sensorium as not being set in stone, the ratios of the senses can change. In other words, the sensorium always adds up to the same thing, but different technological environments lessen or heighten the stress on various senses. So maybe in one culture, sight is 30% of the sensorium, maybe in another it's 60%. And he thinks that that really affects culture and society. A big focus of his is writing, which by translating what was heard into what was seen would alter the ratio of our senses by putting more stress on the visual and less on the hearing. The radio, by taking news that was formerly only read in the newspaper and translating it into speech, does the reverse. McLean doesn't think this is super important on the individual, case-by-case level. He thinks about it in larger terms. So the first time somebody reads something, after having only spoken and listened, it's not like the ratio of their senses is immediately altered. They don't immediately have a new form of consciousness. No, it takes a large-scale, whole society learning to read, and even then it can take generations. In fact, this is a lot of McLuhan's thought, this weird view of history. He's primarily concerned with the European West, although he does cherry-pick examples from all over. He thinks that not only did writing change how people of a given society think, but the phonetic alphabet specifically placed more of a visual stress on the sense ratio than other forms of script. 
The argument for why there is a little complicated. I'll go over it in the next couple episodes. Then, the printing press exacerbated this visual stress even further. Now, however, we live in a new age, beginning in the late 1800s, when electronic media is in the process of overtaking print. First things like radio, film, TV, and now new things like podcasts, the internet, and video games, these are all changing the sense ratios of society. We're going to go over this weird view of history throughout this series. Something I should mention, because there are people who are very passionate about history, is that one of the reasons McLuhan is fun to read is that even if you disagree with his framework of history, you still learn lots of cool things. Before moving on to the last topic, artists, I want to briefly mention a sense that McLuhan finds interesting, the sense of touch, or tactility. Although McLuhan is a philosopher of the senses, he spends most of his time talking about vision, hearing, and touch. I forget if he even mentions taste, and he mentions smell only once out of the stuff that I read. He says that the sense of smell is the most subtle and delicate sense, and that it involves the entire sensorium more than the other senses. But anyways, touch. Now, as I'm sure you may have guessed, McLuhan has a unique understanding of what touch is. Thomas Aquinas, the Christian philosopher of the 13th century and inspiration of McLuhan's, when commenting on Aristotle, suggests this thing he calls sensus communis, or a common sense, but not in the way we use the term. He means a unification of our perceptions. Aquinas thinks that our skin is not the organ of touch, but the medium of touch, and that touch is where all the senses meet, and that without touch, we wouldn't have our other senses. McLuhan grabs hold of this idea and uses a version of it heavily throughout his writings as another probe. Gonna be honest, exactly what he means is a little confusing sometimes. He says things like swear words are heavy with tactility. He says that rhyme and alliteration make a written work more tactile. He likens touch or tactility to white light and says that it includes all the senses in the same way that white light includes all the colors, like when you use a prism to break up white light. He says that, quote, touch is not the skin, but the interplay of the senses, and that it may very well be that in our conscious inner lives, the interplay among our senses is what constitutes that sense of touch. Perhaps touch is not just skin contact with things, but the very life of things in the mind, unquote. This touches, <laughs> touches upon, uh, this brings up another idea of McLuhan's, the concept of interplay. This is another probe of his, how disparate things interact. He says, quote, the art and science of this century reveal and exploit the resonating bond in all things. All boundaries are areas of maximal abrasion and change. The interval or gap constitutes the resonant or musical bond in the material, in the material universe. This is where the action is. To naive classifiers, a gap is merely empty. They will look for connections instead of bonds. They will seek the author's point of view instead of their probing of processes. Such readers will expect value judgments instead of understanding. With medieval dread, they abhor vacuums." Unquote. A lot of this will make sense once we've looked at McLuhan more. I'm sorry to keep saying that, but it's true. There's no linear way to explain him. He has this idea that sight is concerned with connection, whereas sound and tactility are concerned with the gaps, the intervals. And intervals are necessary for interplay. He repeatedly uses the example of a wheel and an axle. In the interplay of wheel and axle, how they both move to make a vehicle move, the interval between them is where the action is. He uses this for a metaphor for his unique version of touch or tactility. Quote, to the sense of touch, the significant form is found in the interval, not in the connection. Unquote. Right? 
this might not make that much sense because when you touch something, it's like you're connected to it. But if I press my hands on the desk in front of me, the fact that there's a separation between me and the desk is how I feel the pressure and texture of the desk that I feel, right? If I was just connected to the desk, if there was a continuity from my hands to the desk, if I was some weird desk man, I wouldn't feel anything. Uh, interplay will come up a lot. Now, a quote that connects the figure-ground relationship, interplay, and how consciousness incorporates the sensorium. Quote, nothing has meaning alone. Every figure must have its ground or environment. A single word divorced from its linguistic ground would be useless. A note in isolation is not music. Consciousness is corporate action involving all the senses. The meaning of meaning is relationship. Unquote. Whew, all right. So this stuff is a little weird and a little confusing, but I hope we're at least moving in the direction of understanding what he's getting at. In the subsequent episodes, when we tie all this to actual events and specific examples, it'll make a lot more sense. All right, so let's talk about artists. I think McLuhan is a very artistic thinker, both in the way that most people use the term and in the unique way McLuhan does. First of all, let's talk about the general definition. Like we've talked about, he rejects the rigor of most of academia, preferring a very intuitional analysis, kind of like an abstract painter dribbling paint on a canvas, seeing what will result from flow and feeling rather than planning and thought. That's kind of like McLuhan's probes. There's also the form of some of his books. Books like Gutenberg Galaxy or Understanding Media are laid out like a conventional book, but his later books like Through the Vanishing Point or Culture is Our Business have unique layouts. The former, Through the Vanishing Point, has a painting or a poem on one side and relevant but disconnected aphorisms or quotes on the other page. The latter, Culture is Our Business, is an analysis of advertising of the 1960s with a similar layout, an ad on one page followed by quotes and aphorisms. It plays around with font a lot too. My favorite idea from Culture is Our Business is that ads are the cave art of the 20th century. I love that quote. He, he calls them masks of energy, not things to be consciously appreciated or appraised, but things meant to create an environment. Back to art. I, I think one of the reasons he's an artistic thinker is that what I'm calling artistic is really evidence of his grammarian attitude from the trivium. He thinks analogically, not scientifically. Or maybe, maybe I shouldn't say scientifically, but atomistically, because analogies, metaphors, these are fundamentally concerned with relationships between things. Whereas atomistic thinking seeks to understand by depriving a given thing of its relationships. McLuhan says, quote, Grammar is the art of gathering and interpreting congruous instances, whether phenomenal or textual. Unquote. Additionally, quote, The pursuit of a psychological order in the midst of a material and political chaos is of the essence of grammatica. Thus, modern symbolism in art and literature corresponds to ancient allegory. Unquote. He's looking for connections, but not continuity. Connections between disparate elements, elements that interplay with one another because they are disparate, separate. It's like that superposition of the pun that I was talking about last episode. That's the perfect example. I'll repeat what he once said. Analogy is the cognitive process itself. Another thing to be said about what I've been calling artistic thinking or artistic analysis is that McLuhan prefers percepts over concepts. Percepts means stuff we get from our perception, information from the senses experience. Concepts are how we order our perceptions, creating categories to group various aspects of our perceptions in so that we can understand the world better. Or maybe not better, but easier, right? Like imagine if we didn't have the concept of a tree. Every time we looked at a tree, it would be like a whole new thing. 
that'd be a super weird way to live, not having concepts. But McLuhan says that, quote, concepts are wonderful buffers for preventing people from confronting any form of percept. Most people are quite unable to perceive the effects of the ordinary cultural media around them because their theories about change prevent them from perceiving change itself, unquote. In other words, when we organize our experience, our perceptions into nicely packaged concepts, we kind of build frameworks that blind us when our experience and perceptions change. This is one of the reasons for McLuhan's probes. He wants to explore. He doesn't want to be blinded from new explorations by a framework that he has already made for himself. Remember that Taoist aphorism I quoted last episode? Name the colors, blind the eye. This is kind of related. This is kind of related. The fancy term for colors is the visible electromagnetic spectrum. And the nature of a spectrum is continuity, right? How we divide up a spectrum is our own doing. So by naming the colors, one divides the electromagnetic spectrum into discrete categories or concepts. And these concepts, many think, affect your perception. A spectrum is continuous, but words are discrete. It's entirely possible for a language to, say, not have a word for orange, which is another way of saying it's possible for a language to not have the concept of orange. And whether the people that speak that language call orange light red or dark yellow could matter, right? If you call it light red, it's automatically grouped in with a family of other red things, like apples or whatever. And if it's called dark yellow, it becomes similar to a whole different group of things. Now, you might be saying, okay, sure, how colors are categorized affects what things belong to which color categories, which might be relevant if you're playing like a card game where a card asks, name something red, or what objects are used to teach children about colors or whatever, but surely it doesn't affect perception, like what you actually see? Well, let's veer off for a sec and talk about Homer. Don't, 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 don't. Nope, not, not that Homer, the Greek dude who wrote The Odyssey and The Iliad. So, in 1858, this guy named William Ewart Gladstone, who later became the Prime Minister of the UK, he wrote a book called Studies on Homer and the Homeric Age. Brilliant title, it really jumps out at you, doesn't it? In the book, Gladstone discusses how weird many of Homer's descriptions of colors are. For example, there's a Greek word, porphyrios, or something like that, um, which in later Greek means purple or dark red. But Homer uses it to describe things like blood, a dark cloud, and a wave, which to us seem like not part of the same color group, not by a long shot. He even uses the word to describe a rainbow. The most famous confusing case of Homeric color is his phrase to describe the sea. The most well-known translation is wine dark, the wine dark sea. He uses it multiple times to describe the sea. The word is only used in Homer to describe one other thing, oxen. The peculiarity of this phrase has long occupied scholars, who have found many explanations. Some think that the Greeks heavily diluted their wine with water, and the impure water was likely alkaline, having a basic pH, perhaps turning the wine bluish. Some think that there were outbreaks of red algae in the sea. Some think that it's a poetic effect without any literal meaning. Some think it's used to describe the sea reflecting a sunset, etc., etc. Interestingly, other ancient texts, not just Greek ones, but all over, never describe the sky as blue. Nowhere is there a word for blue in Homer, because there is no word for blue in Greek at the time of Homer. Many think that the Homeric Greeks were more perceptive about hue and tint than color. Plato named the four basic colors as black, white, red, and bright. Homer's works 
contain many words for describing aspects of light, like shimmering or flashing. The neuropsychologist Jules Davidoff did a study where he went to a Namibian tribe called the Himba, who don't have a word for blue. He showed them 12 colored squares, 11 of them green and one of them blue, and asked which square was different. The members of the Himba couldn't point out the blue square as different. They have different concepts to organize the color spectrum and maybe see colors differently as a result. This is still debated though, so don't just take this one side of the debate. The writer A.S. Byatt says, quote, The names of colors are at the edge between where language fails and where it's the most powerful. Unquote. So what McLuhan is trying to do with his thinking is focus on the percept rather than being blinded or not, well, not blinded, but affected by the concepts. If you're interested in all this color talk, I'm going to put an episode up on Patreon soon that goes over this in more detail in a different context. I just find the whole notion fascinating. So back to McLuhan's preference for percepts over concepts. Now, he wouldn't necessarily agree with the aphorism, name the colors, blind the eye, since he does like naming things, categorizing things, figure versus ground, that sort of thing. But the nature of his probes, all these categories have a sort of fluidity. I'm assuming you can grasp why he likes percepts, given his focus on the senses, but the reasons for disliking concepts will become apparent throughout the series. It relates to stress on the visual sense and what he sees as the effects of that. Relating back to classifying him as a grammarian, it's kind of interesting. He seems to have developed a postmodern distrust of things like rationality and the concept of concepts at the dawn of the postmodern age, but through pre-enlightenment inspiration and methods. Let's put that aside for now, though. I mentioned that McLuhan had a unique definition of artists, and it follows from this preference for percepts. McLuhan's views on artists can be summarized by a quote from the poet Ezra Pound, one that McLuhan refers to many times, and a quote from Windham Lewis. Ezra Pound says that, quote, artists are the antenna of the race, unquote. And Windham Lewis says, quote, the artist is always engaged in writing a detailed history of the future because he is the only person aware of the nature of the present, unquote. McLuhan runs with these ideas. He thinks that artists are experts of sense perception. As I've been mentioning, lots of McLuhan's work looks at how technology changes our cognition and societal structures. Part of this is a belief that technology alters our perceptions, how we see the world, how we understand space and time. McLuhan uses examples of the art of various historical moments and epochs to illustrate the changes in perception that a new technology brings. Who better to look to when figuring out changes in perception than the experts of perception, artists? But, like McLuhan is wont to do, he extends the concept of artist. He says, quote, The artist is the man in any field, scientific or humanistic, who grasps the implication of his actions, and of new knowledge in his own time. He is the man of integral awareness, unquote. This relates to another of McLuhan's probes, the rearview mirror. He thinks that most of us understand the world in terms of previous technological environments. Most of us are blind to the technological environment of the present. It takes someone who is especially aware of things, like their sense perception, to be able to see the present environment. In other words, the artist. So the artist is anyone who is an expert of sense perception and anyone who can sense the nature of the present. And the nature of the present is affected by the technology of the present. McLuhan looks at these technological environments with a big picture view. He's not concerned about one guy buying a new type of toaster or whatever. He thinks, however, that for most of us, this technological environment is unconscious, a hidden ground that we are unaware of. Most people can only see the figures that rise out of this ground. 
we are obviously aware of like writing or the radio or the internet as new technological environments, but we only have a superficial awareness of them and lack an understanding of their effects and the true nature of this ground, this new environment. It's imperceptible to most people. We need artists, the masters of perception, to help us deal with this technological maelstrom. He thinks that most people see technology and society through the rearview mirror because previous environments become perceptible to everyone as a new environment is created. Previous environments become the content of new environments. The previous ground becomes a figure. He starts calling art an anti-environment. It brings the hidden ground into our awareness as a figure, moving it from unconsciousness to consciousness. This relationship gets more complicated because McLuhan has some very peculiar ideas about cause and effect and the nature of time, but we'll expand on all that later. A funny thing I came across was that the writer Gustav Flaubert said that the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 wouldn't have happened if more people had read his book of the previous year called Sentimental Education. So while I think this is funny and arrogant, McLuhan might have agreed. I'll end with a quote by McLuhan, pretty much proving that he is an artistic thinker according to his definition of artist. McLuhan says, quote, Poets and artists live on frontiers. They have no feed back, only feed forward. They have no identities, they are probes, unquote. All right, so we're done with all the introductory episodes. We have been dealing with McLuhan's thought on a more abstract and general level, maybe abstracting things from the ground of his thought and history. But in the upcoming episodes, I'll start talking about all these ideas and more alongside history, and it's a lot easier to parse exactly what he means. So I hope you'll stick around, and I'll see you next time.